Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I want to give you some advice and tips to help you to think more like a Formula One team does when it has to make those big, important, high-pressure decisions that can often define a race or a championship so we can benefit in our own daily lives. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. You only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that that's, that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. As ever, I want to thank you all. A massive thank you to anybody who's returning this week. If you've listened before and you've chosen to come back, that means the world to me. But if you're new around here as well, then welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to click on this podcast. And I hope that you find something that you enjoy. And if you do, well, I would really be grateful if any of you would be willing to take the time to give me a five-star rating if you have enjoyed the podcast episode and a very quick review in the Apple Podcast Store, if that's where you're listening. I really appreciate it. It makes an enormous difference to me and to how we can grow this podcast and reach more people. So if anybody's willing to do that, thank you very much in advance. I appreciate it. I also need to say a massive thank you to CarGods Car Detailing Products. CarGods have been a sponsor of this podcast since the beginning of Season 5, They are back again this week, and I want to say a massive thank you for their support, and also because I've got a story to tell you a little bit later in the episode about how CarGods products literally helped me out of a hole this week, and um, I've got some incredible results uh, with my own car that I want to tell you about a bit later on. If you want to check them out, it's cargods.com. That's where you'll find them, some amazing products to help you look after your car, but also make it look amazing. Thank you to Car Gods. Uh, right, I want to get into uh, a couple of different things this week in the podcast. I've spent the weekend uh, commentating for the BBC on the Singapore Grand Prix. It's now late on Sunday night. As I record this, you will hear this episode from 6am on Monday morning. So I'm under a little bit of pressure to get it done and get it edited and get it uploaded so that everybody who tunes in at 6am, and I know many of you do, will have it there waiting for you on time as normal. But I'm happy to do that because I love doing this. The Grand Prix though, the Singapore Grand Prix, over the course of the weekend threw up a number of different surprises and it threw up one particular moment on Saturday afternoon during qualifying that I wanted to explore a little bit further, that I wanted to expand on and draw out some lessons that we can apply to our daily lives. That's the very point of this entire podcast. It's to look at things that happen in Formula One. It's to look at the way Formula One teams operate and take the lessons from it. The lessons quite literally from the pit lane and apply them to our lives. Because I know having worked in this sport for many, many years, having been at the coalface, having been at the very front line inside one of those garages working for McLaren for a decade, I know how good these teams are, how operationally they are excellent. They are literally at the very top of their game. And I know there's so much that we can all benefit from and learn from. So I want to take you back to Saturday afternoon, qualifying. I'm sure many of you watched the, uh, watched the, uh, the session unfold. 
And I'm sure almost all of you will have had your hearts in your mouths. You'll have been as surprised as I was during commentary to see Max Verstappen on a lap that was almost certainly going to give him pole position for the start of Sunday's race. When we saw Max Verstappen pull into the pit lane, being told box, box, box by his team to have bought the lap and roll into the pits. And as we now know, that was all because they were pretty sure they didn't have enough fuel in the car to cross the line, which would have given them pole position, but then to go on and complete the in-lap, which you're obliged to do, bring the car back to the pit lane and still have enough fuel to be able to deliver a one litre fuel sample to the FIA as required by the regulations. Now, what I want to talk about is not necessarily the moment. We saw it all unfold. We know the results. We know what happened. Many of you, I'm sure, now know exactly what happened in the Grand Prix itself. But what I want to talk about is what was going on behind the scenes in the moments building up to that moment where that fateful radio call had to be made to Max Verstappen. We know how angry he was, how frustrated he was. We heard his responses on the radio, or at least some of them. And I want to explore what was going on behind the scenes, what was going on amongst the team, what kind of conversations were happening, and importantly, how they come to the decision, which must have been incredibly hard to arrive at, a very difficult choice that they had to make there. I want to know how they did that and what we can learn from it to apply to the big moments and the big decisions that all of us face across our lives. We must face them regularly, many of us, across the course of a a week or a month or a year in our business lives, in our commercial lives, our, our working lives, but also in our personal lives. As parents, we are continually being asked to make big decisions about how we manage our children, about what we let our children do, how much freedom we give them. What's the answer to a question that they ask us? And we have to make a snap decision sometimes. We get the same thing in relationships. How do we manage a difficult question when it comes our way? And sometimes there's a pressurized situation in which we have to deliver an answer. And in the work environment, of course, this kind of thing happens all of the time at every single level of a company. So how do we go about making those big decisions? Well, let's explore what would have happened at Red Bull on Saturday afternoon and see what we can take from that process. Max Verstappen, during that Grand Prix, or during that qualifying session rather, will have gone out on the circuit at the start of the session with a car that was well overfueled in comparison to any normal session. So they knew they would have to do a lot of laps as the circuit was starting to dry, so they overfilled the car as opposed to the normal one or two laps worth of fuel that they would have put in the car for a regular dry session. That's to give the driver as much time on track as possible, to be there to take advantage of changing conditions, and to get the driver confident in terms of just gradually building up his pace so that when the final moments of qualifying arrive and the track's at its quickest, you can deliver that ultimate lap time. What happens in the background whilst that session's unfolding is that there is a team of people, systems engineers, who are constantly monitoring all of the parameters that have been sent back from the car. Things like temperatures, for example, the brakes and tyres. Engine parameters like pressures and temperatures of the uh, coolant and the oil systems, that kind of thing. Many, many, many different parameters are being monitored and analysed in real time as the car's out on the circuit. And of course, one of those is fuel consumption. Now, fuel consumption is something that's a little more tricky to monitor as accurately as we would like to. 
Um, it's a, a big bulk of fuel in the tank sat behind the driver in between the driver and the engine. It's being sloshed around constantly. So the sort of gauges that you have in your road car, these little float valves that you have in the back of a, a road car, uh, don't necessarily work in a Formula One car because the, slot, the fuel is sloshing around so much that would give you a very inaccurate reading. So they literally monitor fuel flow at various points in the system. But even so, it's difficult to keep a very accurate track of. Now, even more so on a circuit that's going from wet to dry because you use a lot more fuel in a dry circuit on a dry lap than you do on a wet lap. Your throttle application comes in earlier out of the corners. You can use a lot more throttle when you're talking about acceleration. You can be on throttle for longer on a straight, so later on the brakes. And all of these little things tend to add up to a significantly greater consumption. Now, I'm sure much of this has been discussed in all of the broadcasts today for the Grand Prix, so we'll leave that explanation pretty much there. But during that session, somebody at Red Bull, probably with hindsight now, should have had a closer eye on what their fuel consumption was, and with a prediction as how many laps they would have to do with the amount of time left in the session, how much fuel they had or would have left at the end, how many more laps worth of fuel at full pace they had left in that car. And it felt like somebody took their eye off the ball a little bit. And it was only right towards the very end that perhaps they realized, well, oh my goodness, I forgot to, be, forgot to check fuel consumption. And we've done a lot more laps than we thought we would. Oh dear, this is now a critical problem. But that critical realization of the problem only really happened or was fully understood on the final lap. And it was the final lap that Max Verstappen was on that was going incredibly well. He was at the very closing moments of the session when the track was at its quickest and we all know what was about to happen. Max was nearly a second up on his closest rival, Charles Leclerc, coming towards the final sector of the lap and he was then told to abort the lap and box. Now behind the scenes, I'm speculating, of course, to some extent, because I don't know exactly what happened, but somebody would have had the realization that the fuel level was now critical. They would have looked at that in a bit more depth. They would have double checked and triple checked, and they would have had the realization then that there is no way they think they can get around the final flying lap plus an in-lap and still have the required amount of fuel for a fuel sample. Now, once they reach that conclusion with some certainty, and it is only some certainty. There's always going to be a level of uncertainty there because the sort of margins we're talking about are so fine that it was probably a very difficult call to make between would he make it or wouldn't he make it? And this is really where I want to get into this because these are the kinds of decisions that we all have to make regularly throughout our lives. Close calls that can have very different outcomes but not a lot in terms of what splits you from one potential decision to another. Now, when this realization was made at Red Bull, somebody would have had to scale it up the hierarchy within the team. So the systems engineer might have gone to his chief engineer, for example, and said, look, I've just found this. We're now in, in trouble. We're not going to make it to the end of this session. This, the uh, the um, senior engineer would have had to double check and confirm that make sure that, that was absolutely true, and then would have probably scaled it up even further. And that might have gone to the race engineer, it would have probably gone to Christian Horner, the team manager, the pit wall in general would have suddenly been aware of this problem. Because ultimately, when we're talking about a really big decision like that, 
It has to be scaled up. And in the end, the very most senior person on that side of the garage would have probably made that call. It may have even gone as far as Christian Horner, I don't know. Certainly the race engineer would have had to make that decision in conjunction with a number of other people. And that's the point. There would have been a number of people feeding into this decision-making process. So let's say it gets to Christian Horner, and I'm speculating here, but let's say it gets to the most senior person, Christian Horner. What's Christian Horner going to do? And bear in mind, we've got seconds probably to make that call before you run out of time to make that decision and the decision is, is made for you. Christian Horner, I would imagine in that scenario, will be asking for as many pieces of input that he can. How many pieces of information can we get to help make that decision? And this is really the framework that Formula One teams operate that I think we can learn from. The framework in these big decision-making moments is a variation at different teams on this. Very simply put, if you have to make a huge decision, an important decision that's difficult, and if you're under pressure, this is how most teams would go about it. The first thing you do is you say, well, is it an easy call? Is there a clear winner or loser out of these two decisions? This fork in the road, these two paths, is it obvious which one I'm going to go for? And in these moments, quite often, the answer to that is no. Okay, it's not an obvious decision. So it's a close call. Okay, are we under time pressure? Can I wait and gather more information? So have we got another minute before that decision is absolutely critical and we just have to make it? And if I've got another minute, let's use that minute to gather more information, to analyze more data, to get another reading or another input from the car, get another person's opinion on the types of decision that we've got to make here. But if the answer to that question is no, we haven't got any more time, we are now at decision point. We have to make the decision. The pressure is now on, so we can't now use more time. That factor's gone. Now, if you've got no time, you have to look at the information that's right there available in that moment. Now, let's say it's Christian Horner making this call. He's been told a series of information from a bunch of people. A senior systems engineer has given him the information about literally how much fuel is left in that car and how much more fuel he's going to need to complete the lap and the in-lap and then deliver the fuel sample. If those two numbers are very, very close, that, de that decision is still a very difficult one to make. If those two numbers are completely mismatched and it's a very obvious call, well, you go back to that first question you asked and you wouldn't have had to go any further because the decision was an easy one. If the numbers were that different between what fuel you needed and what fuel you had, it's a relatively easy decision. But let's say the numbers were so close that it wasn't an easy decision. Then what do you do? Well, then at that point, you look at other people's opinions. You ask very quickly for the other people in that team, the, senior, the people of seniority. You're asking the race engineer, what do we think we can do? What should we do? You're starting to look at the consequences of both decisions. And this is happening in split seconds here. So you might go to the team manager and you might say, right, what are the consequences of making a decision, decision A, which might be to leave Max out, to complete the lap, to snatch pole position, and then argue about it later. Let's say he can't make it round. He doesn't have enough fuel left in it for a sample. What would be the consequences of that? What would be the likely outcome of an investigation by the FIA? 
Would it be disqualification for the entire qualifying session and sent to the back? Quite possibly that would be the answer. That would be the outcome. And that's a pretty serious consequence to making that decision. That's the negative consequence. The positive consequence of making that decision would be that you would have snatched pole position. And if you do get away with it, starting from pole position on a track like Singapore, well, that's enormous. What a great advantage. And actually, with a bit of hindsight today, I'm fairly sure that if Max had started on pole, if he'd managed to get a great start, there's a very high chance that he would have had a far better outcome in that race than he did from starting back in eighth. But the other point here is we have to look at the consequence of not making it round. So if we take the decision of bringing Max in and parking him, not letting him complete the lap, what are the consequences of that? Well, the consequence of not letting him complete the lap means, as we saw, he doesn't get pole position. He has to start a very difficult race on a very difficult track to overtake from eighth position. That's a huge blow to any championship hopes or certainly any hopes of really great, strong race results come Sunday. But what about the other side of that particular coin? Well, the other side of that coin is that you may have played it safe. So if there's an investigation from the FIA, well, you've got the required amount of fuel to give a sample. You're in the clear. You've done everything right. You've covered all bases on that front. So these two decisions, this fork in the road, has consequences both in positives and potentially in negatives on either fork. It's a difficult choice to make. And at some point, this hypothetical situation that I've created here where Christian Horner, in my example, is having to make a decision and all of the things that I've just described to you in explaining that process may have had to happen in a matter of seconds. And this is when it comes down to making that choice. And sometimes, and we must all have our own examples of this in our lives, sometimes these choices just have to be made and the choice after all of this internal conversations, he's weighing up the pros and cons of both choices, even after all of those things, sometimes it's still a really close call, as it almost certainly must have been for Max Verstappen's team on Saturday afternoon. But then you've got to make that call. And whenever I'm having to make a big decision like that, I always go back to something that Barack Obama former president of the United States, something that he says regularly, said it in some of his talks on stage. He's been asked the question many times, how do you make a really big decision? And for him, some of those decisions can be literally a matter of life or death. I've mentioned this briefly in a previous episode, but Barack Obama's way of dealing with these big moments, sending his country to war, making huge decisions around the economy, these type of decisions, he always says that if he's got time, he'll wait for more information. But if he doesn't have time, well, then he'll ask himself, how sure am I? Because if he can get in his own mind, if he can justify a decision based on being at least 51% certain that one of those choices is the right one, he says 51% is enough. Of course, if there's time, you wait. You never make a call on just a 51% chance of certainty if you don't have to. But if you actually have to, and in those cases with a president of a country, you just have to make a call sometimes. He says he can sleep at night if he was 51% sure or greater 
that he made the right decision in that moment under pressure with the information that he had available to him. And that's the key point here. This is exactly what Red Bull Racing would have had to do on Saturday afternoon. They have a certain amount of information available to them in that moment. And they would have loved to have had more information, but they didn't. And time was closing in, so they had to make a choice based solely on the information they did have. Now, that information could have led them down two paths. To let Max complete the lap, get pole position, and argue about it later. Take the risk. Or to settle for an eighth place starting position, knowing that they were playing it safe. And perhaps in the greater scheme of things, in the big picture of a world championship fight, starting from eighth at the Singapore Grand Prix is a way better option than the other potential outcome of starting last, potentially with a fine as well, having been found guilty of being in breach of the regulations. They had a limited amount of information available. They had a very limited amount of time. And within those parameters, they made a very difficult and brave decision. A decision, by the way, that was hugely public, that wasn't going to be popular amongst millions of people, fans. Their own driver screamed and shouted and swore at them on the radio. But Max didn't have the information that the team had. They had information that factored into their decision-making process. And I had to say, despite the fact that it was a massive cock-up from Red Bull, an unusual cock-up in recent times to effectively run out of fuel or under-fuel your car, I had to take my hat off and have massive respect for the fact that they made a very difficult decision, a very difficult call under massive pressure, and they delivered that decision at the right moment clearly and concisely to their driver, and they talked about it later when he got out of the car. They explained that decision. Now there may well be decision, there may well be information rather that comes to light later on that might prove one way or the other that those decisions were either right or wrong. But if that decision, if that information wasn't there at the time, you can't go back and change it. It can't change what you did in that moment as being right or wrong. And if we have to make decisions like this, if we have to make big decisions around jobs, do we take the job that we've been offered? Do we quit our existing job? Do we work on a relationship or do we walk away from it because we don't feel it's working? Do we take decisions about finances? How do we spend our money? How do we earn our money? What do we do with our money? Do we invest it? Do we, do we put it into things that might be slightly controversial, might be high-risk strategies? Do we gamble it? These are all huge decisions, and we face so many more of them, some way more serious than any of those things. Decisions around our health, both physical and mental, our well-being, our families, and as I said before, our children. As parents with very little in the way of training, we're asked to make big decisions about what we do with our children, what we let our children do, how we answer their questions how we manage their lives in the early parts of their lives. We don't have a huge amount of information sometimes to make those calls, but if we refer back to the same framework that I have just described, a Formula One team using, the same sort of framework that Barack Obama talks about using in his speeches, we look at the information we have available in that moment. If it's that moment that we have to make the call, 
we look at the information that we have in front of us. We gather as much as we can in the time available, and then when time runs out, we've only got that information to decide upon. And if we decide, make the right decision to us based on that information, in that moment, we can sleep at night. We can be comfortable that we did the best job that we could in that moment. Doesn't matter if what comes next changes. If we get more information just a second later after we've made the, made the decision, there's nothing we could have done about that. We have taken as much opportunity to gather the information, to get as many opinions as we can, to inform ourselves in the best way possible before we're forced to make the call. And then, and only then, when we make that call, we can be comfortable and happy that we did our very best. And I think that is a really important, it's a really valuable way to look at decision-making. And if you come up against a huge decision that you have to make in the next week or so, even if it's at some point further down the line, and it will happen, we will all have to make them. We make them every single day when we're driving our cars and when somebody pulls out in front of us, which way do we go? You know, do we slam the brakes on? Do we try and avoid and go around them? Do we accelerate out of a situation? These little micro decisions that can still have enormous consequences, we're making snap choices on all of the time based on the information that's in front of us in that moment. If you could slow the process of a car crash down and play it frame by frame, if you could watch that information in slow motion, you may well make different decisions because you've got more time to take that information in, to analyze it, to look around at what your options are. But in real life, we don't have that. We look at the information, the snap information that we're presented with in the split seconds before we have to decide what to do and we make it. It's instinctive, but it's the same thing. Our minds are doing exactly what I'm describing. It's just happening way, way quicker. But quite what often happens is that when we go into these big decisions and these big moments where we're faced with a big decision, we don't fall back on instinct. We don't do what our brains would often do instinctively. We panic about it. We think too much about it. We worry about it. And that's natural when you've got a big decision with massive consequences on your plate. But if we go back to that framework of just doing the best we can with the information we have to our, at our disposal in that moment, that's the important thing. It's in the moment. If we rely on what we've got in front of us, if we don't have the opportunity to gather any more information at that time, we have to make a decision. We should be comfortable that we made the right one with what information we had available to us. And that is really it. That's the way that we should look at these things. It's always good to go back and analyze afterwards. Of course it is. To look at whether we could have done things better or differently. Whether we could have made a different decision. Whether the information that may have come to light since would have changed things. Of course we should analyze that. We should learn from it. But we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it if it didn't go the way we hoped. If it didn't go the way we expected it to. Because after we made the call, maybe something else came to light that changed it. And if it had come to light before we'd made the decision, then we would have probably made a different decision. But it didn't. 
And I think that's what I wanted to say here. I was impressed with how Red Bull Racing went about making that very tough call. Yes, they put themselves in that position in the first place by getting the fueling of the car wrong, by not tracking it earlier and more accurately, by monitoring closer and making a decision around that sooner. They should have done all those things. But then when they didn't, when they found the problem, they had to react very quickly and their reaction was probably the right one, albeit a very difficult thing to do. And look, that's the, the first topic or the first part of today's podcast that I really wanted to, to cover there. It was based on that moment on Saturday afternoon when I had to sort of take my hat off and I immediately went to many moments that I've been involved in like that at McLaren, when you have to make massive decisions, massive choices. And I always remember thinking, not only could these decisions change the outcome of our race, not only could they affect our championship hopes, for example, but there are millions of fans who are pinning their hopes on us to get it right. And I always imagined those people on the other end of a television set, because I used to be one of them. I imagined a feeling of letting them down if we got it wrong. And I think that's something that we quite often do. We go immediately to the worst case scenario consequences when we're weighing these things up in our mind. Pressure can have a, a series of effects on us in that we exaggerate one outcome or another. When we're taking risks or risky decisions, people tend to be split into two camps. We either exaggerate the positive outcome of the risk that we're about to take. And many people do that and they exaggerate that in their mind and it helps them to convince them to go for the decision they want to go for. They're already seeing the glory that might come from this risk paying off. But by far the more common outcome here, by far the more common reaction, because as humans, we have a negative bias built in, most of us. We are, believe it or not, a much more negative force as a species in terms of our thought process and our worry and our fears. It's got thousands of years of evolution that have developed that. We were always terrified of everything. We went to worst case scenario because the worst case scenario when we're living on the plains of Africa, just trying to survive, was that we were gonna get eaten. If we make the wrong choice, we die. And that's ingrained in us to some extent. And so, so many people in this life have this negative bias. And that's one of the things that often hampers decision-making like this. We exaggerate one or other of the two outcomes and it's that that informs our opinion and our decision. Whereas actually, if we can just look at the information, if we can look at it in a much more unbiased fashion, look at the, the stats, the black and white, the numbers in front of us, the information that's there and available to us, if we can just look at those, we can have a much more informed decision rather than the one that's skewed by a potential outcome that hasn't happened yet that might seem like it's either the end of the world or it's going to win us the world championship. There are flip sides to both of those and we need to weigh them all up. And that's my advice to you. Weigh everything up in the time you have available. Look at the information and then make your decision and be confident that you've made the decision based on what's in front of you and what information you have. That's my advice. Right, I want to sh uh, shuffle it on to another topic, another topic that is actually very closely related. 
And you'll find as we move through this that many of these things are, are very similar and there will be crossover. And it comes from a moment that happened with me earlier this week. So let me take you back very quickly and set the scene. I, I've talked about this before, but I was very fortunate. I bought myself a brand new car early this year. It's a Tesla Model 3 performance. I love it. It is a one, it's the first time I've ever owned a new car. But apart from that, I absolutely love the car. It's got technology that's just incredible. I'm a gadget freak and it's packed full of gadgets. This thing has insane tech, way more tech than anyone needs, but that is so far up my street. I love it. The interior splits opinion, but I like it. It's simple, it's uncluttered. It uses a great big iPad style device to control most things. And as I said, I'm a gadget freak, so I love that. The performance of this car is mind blowing. It's unbelievably fast. It does naught to 60 in three seconds. I mean, I still giggle every time I put my foot on the throttle pedal. It's amazing. And yet there's only one thing I don't like about that car. And it's the styling. It's the front and rear end of that car, to me, are so meh. <laughs> They're just nothing special. And yet everything else about that car, in my humble opinion, is special. And I know that styling is subjective, so other people may well like the styling of a Tesla. But it doesn't really matter because it's my Tesla, so my opinion of it matters to me. So I love the performance, I love the interior, I love the technology, I love the, the way it works, the usability, the, the sort of user experience of it. It's all brilliant. The app is seamlessly integrated. It's been a wonderful experience. But every time I look at it, I feel like the styling lets it down. It's a little bit more Ford Mondeo than the Lamborghini-esque performance that it has. And so I looked at that, I've been looking at this car, wondering if there's anything I can do about it. And I went online recently and I found a company in Germany that makes a sort of aftermarket styling kit for it. Now, they actually produced an entire body kit with spoilers and side skirts. And I wasn't really interested in all of those things, but the front and rear bumpers I looked at I liked the styling of that this company had produced and I decided to get some and put them on my car. And that's what I did this week. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this is to tee up this idea of looking at things that you're not entirely happy with or looking at things that you think you can improve and then taking the decision to go ahead and improve those things. I looked at my car and I said, for me, it's almost perfect in every way apart from this one thing, which is the way the front end and the rear end look. And I found a solution to that and I went ahead and I chose to get those things and I've just put them on the car this week. Now there's a risk associated with that because, well, A, there's a financial investment, there's a time investment on my part to get them, to get them over here from Germany, to get them fitted to the car, get them painted. And I also want the whole thing to look good. I don't want to make this look any worse. I don't want it to be a cheap aftermarket kit that looks awful. Now I was fairly convinced that it wasn't going to be that, but I had to wait till I got them here and then till I got them on the car to really get uh, a full opinion of exactly what that was going to look like. Anyway, I put them on the car this week. Now after I spent a morning fitting them to the car, taking the old ones off, swapping things like parking sensors, the wiring harness, the little radar scanner, temperature sensors, all these things that are in the front bumper. 
had to unplug those, take them off, put them into the new one, and then, and then fit that to the car. There's a risk that some of those, that might introduce problems to a brand new car, but it didn't. I got through the whole process, I got them on, it worked, and I have to say it looked great. And one of the reasons that I wanted to, I teed up this story right at the beginning was off the back of this, having had a freshly painted set of bumpers and putting them on a car that was painted some time ago, there's always a risk that you might get a slight color mismatch. Now we didn't have that, but I did want to make sure they were gonna be protected. And actually what I then did was I went through the entire suite of car gods, car detailing products that I happen to have in my workshop. I went through, I spent quite a lot of time actually applying a series of different products from cleaners and polishes to protect protection solutions. And in the end, the car looked stunning. And one of the things that I'm so impressed with with Car God's products is not only how good they can make your car look, but how protective certain products can be. When I applied some products to my car that gave it an incredible sheen, but also give this uh, idea of repelling water and rain. And after I'd polished the car and cleaned it and made it look amazing with all of these different products, it then proceeded to pour down with rain for the next three days here in the UK. I had to drive through muddy lanes down country roads to get back to my house. And when I got back to my house on the third day of doing this, the car still looked as gleamingly shiny as it did when I polished it three days ago in the workshop because all of the water had literally just run off the car. It had splashed off, beaded and disappeared and the car still looked stunning. Now I've never had that to that level before. And I'm really, really pleased. So I'm really pleased with the car guards products. I'm really pleased with the bumpers, but the two together have what have given me this idea that I now have a car that I feel like I've improved to the point where I like every single part of it. I love every element of it. The bodywork, the styling, for me now matches the performance. It matches everything else that I'm really pleased with in that car. So look, that's a little example of how Car God's products can really improve your car, not only in terms of how it looks, but also preventative maintenance. Stopping that dirt and things like bird poo and things that can deteriorate your paint massively, as well as UV lighting from the sun, UV rays. They can deteriorate new paint pretty rapidly if you don't give it a little bit of care and attention. So check out cargods.com. They're a, a very important sponsor of this podcast. I'm really grateful to them for doing that. I'm hoping this is gonna turn into a longer term partnership, but to help that to happen, I'd love it if you go and check them out. Cargods.com for anything you need for your car, whether it's an old classic or something brand new that you want to protect, there's something there for you. So go and check them out. Now this story isn't finished because the reason I've teed it up that way is because what I want to talk to you about is this idea of looking for things that you're not happy with, either in your life or in your company, whether it's your car, your house, some of the things you own, your relationships. If you look and you see things that you're not necessarily really happy with, the next question should always be, in my opinion, can you do something about it? And that's exactly what I asked myself when I started looking at my car, a car that I was so happy with in so many areas, yet there was one area that really let it down for me, that I wasn't content with, that I kept looking at, and it bugged me, it frustrated me. So the next question was, okay, so it's not perfect, it's not ideal, there's something that's missing for me, can I do something about it? 
And the answer was, having done a little bit of research online, the answer was, yes, I can. And they had to weigh up, okay, I can do something about this. Is it going to be worth, worth it for me? Is it going to be worth my time, my money, the investment of both of those things? Is it going to be worth the risk that comes with taking a brand new car apart? Unplugging things like sensors and hoping that when you put it all back together with a wiring harness in a new bumper, that it's all going to work the way it should, the way it did. That risk had to be weighed up. And I took that moment to think about whether the risk was worth it. And I decided in that moment, yes, it was. And I went ahead and did it. And I'm really pleased with the result. Now, I tend to look at everything in my life like that. I tend to look at everything and analyze it to some extent. And I ask myself the questions. If there's something I'm not happy with or I'm not content with or I feel like could be improved, is there something that I can do about it? And I always think about it in terms of how we used to approach Formula One. When I'm working at the team and I'm dealing with drivers who've come in after a session and they're feeding back to me and the engineers in the garage, giving their feedback on what the car was doing around the lap. When we're looking at data and we're trying to understand where the car's quick and where it's not so quick. And we might be talking about hundreds or thousands of a second in terms of lap time. We might be talking about tiny little details of what the driver's feeling. The car might be great, the car might be really quick, we might have the quickest car on the track sometimes, but we should always ask ourselves the question, can we make it even better? Is there something that we can improve? And if there is, is it worth our time and our investment to do it. And in Formula One terms, there can be many situations that work on both sides of that. Many times the car comes in and clearly there's room for improvement. It might be changing a wing setting, tweaking anti-roll bar settings, changing springs, any of those mechanical setup changes. It might be that the driver can look at the data and decide he needs to put some tweaks to his driving style to get the best out of that car. Those are the things that we have to weigh up in the moment, is it worth our time? If the driver comes in and says, I've got you know, massive understeer through a particular corner. Now there's a number of ways we can approach the problem of understeer on a Formula One car. It could be that we could just tweak front wing settings. That's a really quick change, matter of seconds. We can wind a bit of front wing in and that might reduce some of that understeer. But it might have knock-on consequences at other parts of the lap. It increases drag, so it might slow the car down down the straights, and that might cost us more dearly. You know, we could do things like perhaps just drop the ride height a tiny bit, but that might take a little bit longer to do, depending on how your ride height's adjusted. So you have to weigh up, is it worth it? We can improve it using that method, but is it worth it? Because if it's going to take five minutes to make that change, but we've only got three minutes until we need to be out on track, well, then it's probably not worth it. Anti-roll bar changes, the same sort of thing. They might take a little bit longer. So you weigh up in the moment, yes, we can improve it. We can find a solution to the problem of understeer, but is it worth it? Is it worth our time in that case? And it may well be that in that particular incident, it's not. And you suffer the understeer rather than get out late for the session, miss your qualifying lap. And the same things apply to our lives. And this is why I wanted to bring this up. Because in my mind, these are things that we should be asking ourselves every single day. 
Look at a situation in your life or a scenario, whether it's a relationship or your job or anything, quite frankly. Look at it and say, look, am I happy with the way this is going? You know, what are the good things about my job? What are the bad things? What are the great things about my relationship? What are the bad things? The good things, well, that's wonderful. Can we maintain that? Can we improve it? Obviously. Then we look at the bad things because those are the bits we're not happy with. And we should never just continue with something that we're unhappy with if there's an opportunity to improve it. And that opportunity can be justified in terms of our investment of time or money or consequences or whatever it might be. Now, there are so many things that we probably could improve that are not worth our our investment of time or money. When I drove into a multi-storey car park, one that I use regularly near me, and every time I go up the ramp, I think, why on earth have they put massive curbs and this this ramp is so narrow and the, the turning at the top is so tight? How many people must scrape the wall or scrape the curb? I could easily improve the design of that multi-storey car park. I could very easily take a pen and a pad and I could sketch out something that's better. But is it worth my time, my investment of time or money to go ahead and actually try and improve that multi-storey car park? It's not. It's not mine. I don't own it. I'd have to convince somebody to invest or spend that money to make that happen. Probably have to shut the car park down. They're probably not going to be interested in that because that's going to lose the money. So there's absolutely no reason, there's no justification for me to go ahead and actually try and improve the layout of that multi-storey car park. Even though I could, I know I could, make wider radiuses in the corners, make the ramps wider, maybe lose a few spaces so we've got a bit more space to park so that people feel more comfortable opening their doors without bashing the car next to them. They're easy improvements, but they're not ones that I can justify pursuing. But there will be other things in my life, and there are other things in in my life, that I look at where I can find a way to improve things. And that, for me, is the key to growing. That's exactly what I try and do on a regular basis and what I encourage you to do too. The question, of course, is how do you know if it's going to be worth it for you or not? How do you know whether you can justify the effort or the time or the money or whatever input you have to make to to make that improvement happen? How do you know if that's going to be worth it or not? And that is something that's going to come down to individual opinion. Of course, only you will really know the answer to that. But the way I always think to look at it is, how much of a problem is it in your life? How much spare capacity do you have to apply to that problem? How how much of a regular thing is it for you? If I go back to the example of my car, it wasn't causing me a major problem. It wasn't like it was hampering my use of the car. It wasn't stopping me driving it. It wasn't stopping me getting from A to B. But the more and more I looked at it, the more and more I looked out of the window at my car, or I walked up to it to get in it, I was frustrated by it. And when something happens regularly like that, and it starts to become a regular frustration, that's when these things start to encroach in your mind and they start to become a, an issue that might need addressing. And for me, that became justifiable because I used the car so much. I was so proud of owning a new car. I loved every other thing about this car, but there was one bit missing for me. There was one thing that I couldn't just shout about the car as being wonderful in every area. 
but now I can. Having made that small investment, now I can. So I'm happy, I'm content. I now walk up to my car and I'm proud of it. I want to take pictures of it. I'm excited by it. And again, because I use that car so much, there's so many miles in it. There are so many other Tesla Model 3s on the road that all look the same. I now look at them and I feel a little bit of extra contentment knowing that in my opinion, and it's only my humble opinion, mine looks better. It gives me some enjoyment, some contentment. So if there's a thing in your life that may be relationship-based, for example, that's just niggling away at you, and we've all got those, right? No matter how happy you are with your partner in life or a friend, no matter how happy you are with that relationship, how many things are wonderful, there's always going to be something that's a bit frustrating, that's a little bit annoying, that just gets you wound up on a regular basis. And if you live with that person, if you spend an inordinate amount of time with that person, that tiny little thing is going to start growing bigger and bigger in your life. It's going to become an even bigger issue. Those little tiny things are the kinds of things that lead on to relationship breakdowns because they become so frustrating and nobody does anything about it. And so they grow. They become more of a frustration. And no matter how much you look at the person in your life, you're the other half of your special relationship and find frustrations there, there will be things that other people find frustrating about you too. And whilst I'm not looking at you saying we've got something frustrating on the other side of your relationship, somebody at home winds you up through something small that they do, what can you do about it? It's not so much about you having to do something about them. In that kind of scenario, yes, you can mention it, you can talk about it, you can say it's frustrating, and then it's over to the other person to see if they feel like that investment on their part to change parts of their behavior is worth it. That's up to them, that's their call. But you can still do something on your side of that equation too. Because if these things are starting to wind you up and it's becoming so much of a frustration, you feel like you've got to do something about it you can still look at your own behaviors, your own reactions to those behaviors, to those things. If something small and niggly like somebody leaving the toothpaste lid off is winding you up to the point where you're now getting so angry about it, you wanna change that person. You can make your voice heard. You can say that that annoys you. And then hopefully the other person will see that as a big enough justification to try harder to put the toothpaste lid on but you can also try changing how frustrated you get about something so small as the toothpaste lid. I'm using that example because that's exactly what winds me up about my own wife. She leaves the toothpaste lid off. But perhaps the fact I get so annoyed about it is actually my issue and not hers. And I can do something about that. And if we go all the way back to this idea that I started with of how a Formula One team looks at things they can improve for maybe thousands or hundreds of a second on lap time. These are tiny little things, but we always have to justify whether the improvement is worthwhile doing or not. Formula One's operating in a, a budget cap right now. They're having to make massive decisions about where they spend their money. They can't throw money at everything anymore like they used to. Now we've got to look at areas that can be improved and say, well, okay, is that going to give us a good return on our investment? And not all of them will be. There are things that can make a car go more quickly, 
in every Formula One team that they can't action because it doesn't justify the investment. They're not going to get the return on the investment that they made. And other improvements may well give them a better return, a more efficient return for their money. And this is the same thing for us. We have to look at the return we're going to get on our investment. Is it worth it? If it's something that's going to change your, your happiness level, your frustrations level, your emotion level, all of these things, these, these mental reactions to things that might be going on in your life, yes, they may well justify some investment in trying to change them. But the other way to look at that is that it could be that the investment should be on your part in how you react to some of these things, how, how much you let them upset you or wind you up. Is there something you can do to improve that side of things? Formula One teams look at every single aspect of every single thing that they do every single day and they ask themselves the questions, can I improve on it? Is there something that I can do better or that I could have done better? And if there is, can I justify making that change? In a Formula One team, there are changes happening every single day, all of the time. They review even the very best outcomes from a Grand Prix. If you won the race by a minute, you'd still review it and look for improvements. And if you came last when you hoped to win, you'd go through exactly the same process. What could I have done better? What can I do better next time? And can I justify putting a certain amount of resource into that particular problem? Or am I better looking at something else? So we can do exactly the same things, whether it's writing this stuff down in a diary as I do. For me, I find that a really therapeutic way to analyze my day that went before and to question it, to debrief, if you like, on the day that just happened. I look at things that went well, things I'm happy with. I talk about the moments that made me happy or how did many moments in the day make me feel? And it gives me a framework to look at it and say, well, I could have done things differently. If I'd done this differently, the way I felt later on in the day, well, that might've changed. Or the outcome that I was aiming for that I didn't quite achieve, that might've changed if I just changed a behavior or an action that happened way earlier on that same day. It's about debriefing, it's about reviewing, analyzing, like a Formula One team does all of the time about how we go about our business and whether there are ways that we can improve on it and do it differently to get a better outcome or an outcome that we deem to be better further down the line. These kinds of decisions that we have to make, go back right to the start of this podcast, these big decisions that we make all of the time are all about analyzing what we have in front of us, analyzing what we've done, what the potential outcome is of every given decision that we might have to make. Can we change something that might change that outcome? And sometimes we have to make these calls in such tight timeframes. They can seem so daunting to us, but they don't have to be. Because as long as you're comfortable that you made the right decision in the right moment when you had to, when the pressure was on and you were forced into a call, if you made the right one for that particular moment with what you had available to you, you did well. You did the best you could. And nobody can do anything better than do their best in that moment. Of course, after that, we can always go back, as I said earlier, review the situation. 
Look at what we could do better next time. If that situation unfolds in a similar way again, well, then we've learned a huge amount from the outcome off the back of the decision that we made, whether it was right or wrong with hindsight. We've learned a massive amount and we can apply that into our data bank so that when we get faced with a similar situation in the future, we either make a better decision, we may have a better outcome, or we become less frustrated. We become a little bit happier with the thing that we're talking about in our lives. My car. I'm really happy with my car today where I wasn't so happy with it three days ago. But together with new bumpers and a proper good shine up from the cargods.com team, <laughs> then I'm really now pleased with the way the car looks. So look, I encourage you this week to go away and have a think about some of these things. And you may not face a life or death or a race defining, a championship defining decision this week. You may not face one of those next week, but you will face one at some point. You'll face one over the next year or two years or whenever it comes, it will come. And if you've had time or given a bit of time, a little bit of spare capacity to think about these things in the way that I've talked about today, you might just be a little bit better prepared for making that big decision when you have to. And it's always preparation that leads us to the better outcomes in the end. And whatever the outcome, analyze it, review it, go over it. Whenever you've got anything in your life or in your day that wasn't quite perfect, and quite frankly, that's everything. <laughs> Nothing's perfect, which means that everything has scope for improvement. And if there's scope for improvement, if we analyze it like a Formula One team would, we can find those improvements, work out what they are, how they can benefit us, and which ones are worth us putting some effort into, and which ones are not. Thank you so much for listening again, guys. I appreciate every single one of you, really, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart. I feel like I can see you all. I feel like I can feel you all watching and listening wherever it is you are in the world. I want to say a massive thank you. Please take a moment to go and give me a very quick five-star review and a rating uh, in the Apple Podcast Store. A five-star rating if you've enjoyed what you've heard. It really would mean the world to me. Let me know how you're listening. Let me know what you want more of or less of in the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Please go and visit cargods.com because I promise you there is something there for you. And this is an incredible suite of products. I am not just saying this because they're partners of the podcast. I'm saying it, as I've told you before, because I have used and tried almost every product on the market. And genuinely, the products at cargods.com are by far the best, the most effective, and I've benefited from it on my own car this week. Go and get your own and try it for yourself. And whatever it is you're up to this week, guys, try and remember this. Do the right things, do the things right. <laughs>